Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. In this episode of Our Classroom, we'll be talking about transgressive humor with Dr. David E. Lowe, an associate professor of literacy education at California State University, Fresno. His research examines how children and youth critically theorize race, gender, power, and identity using multimodal literacy practices. In particular, David explores students' use of humor and the comics medium as vehicles to critique dominant discourses and rewrite them. If there is a single through line to David's work, it is a deep and abiding interest in liminality and change and what happens within the in-between spaces of radical possibility. With us today, David E. Lowe. Well, my people, welcome back to our classroom. Today I am joined by David Lowe, Associate Professor of Literacy Education at the Kremen School of Education and Human Development, California State University, Fresno. Hey, shout out to all my people on the West Coast. Um, glad to be here with David today. And this is going to be a new topic for our classroom, certainly a new topic for me, transgressive humor in the classroom. And came across David when we were at a conference in San Diego spoke a little bit and he's telling me about the, the book that he's working on and, and this topic of tra transgressive humor in the classroom. Like, hey, what's that, man? Tell me more. I think humor is a good thing. And I think, you know, we should find ways to to have humor in the classroom, to keep people laughing. And uh, it's, it's part of how we find some joy, right? And so I'm interested to learn about this concept of transgressive humor in the classroom. I'm interested to learn more about the book that you're writing, David, and you know why we should be interested in this uh, this particular topic, and also how it is that we can use this approach to connect with students. So, David, welcome. Thank you for coming to our classroom. Thank you for having me. I am really excited for this conversation today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into it. You're working on a book. And why don't you tell us about the concept of your book and when you anticipate it'll be published? Uh, let's start there. Oh, sure. Well, I am in the thick of it right now. I've been working uh, pretty much every day, just sitting down at the public library because I'm on sabbatical, typing, 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 getting these chapters done. And the book is starting to take shape. And in a lot of ways, it's it's surprising me. You know, I, I thought I had a handle on it when I when I was getting started. I, I know the data, I know the arguments, but then the you know the writing gets away from you a little bit, and you start seeing other things in the data. But yeah, transgressive humor is what the book was about. It still is. And um, what I think I'm coming to though is that humor is not always just a good thing in the classroom. I think I knew that as a student way back when. I certainly knew that as a teacher. But as a researcher, um, I've probably had a little bit of a, a dilemma in romanticizing humor, romanticizing the student who kind of operates like a class clown and saying, 
well, let's think about what they're doing. But you always got to look at humor that isn't meant to liberate, that isn't meant for emancipatory purposes. Also, the humor that is meant to impugn and defame and belittle and dehumanize. And so that's becoming a part of the book, too, in a way that I hadn't originally intended it to be. But these are things that happen in schools as well. So to kind of backtrack just a minute, um, with the book, what the intended purpose of the book is, is to kind of get into the ways that humor, when used uh, to transgress boundaries, can be seen as a critical practice, as a critical literacy practice. And you know, critical literacy has been around for decades. Um, it's still a very vital concept you know, that we, we don't just use literacy to literally read and to decode letters on a page, but we're using literacy all the time to read the world, to read the word, to think about how is that text acting upon me? Who wrote that text? What were their purposes in writing it? How are they trying to persuade me? Um, we bring in critical theories when we read. We think through feminist lenses. We use critical race theory, we use queer theory. We use decolonially decolonial theory and, and post-colonial theory. Um, whenever we're doing that, we're critiquing texts. We're looking at, uh, we're, we're learning to read against the grain of the text. Rather than just letting the text work on us as readers, we're working back upon the text. And so from where I sat as a kind of class clown growing up, that's what humor does too. You know, oftentimes you're using humor to interrogate. You're using humor to push back. You're using power to humor to kind of take power down a peg. Um, and so it's always been an interesting, I guess, uh, dilemma or discontinuity for me that a lot of teachers out here who I work with um, who talk a good talk about critical literacy and wanting to teach their students to read through critical lenses and to address real social issues of our time, to really dig into um, racial issues and gender sexuality issues, to get into um, issues of global apartheid and immigration, these are the teachers that sometimes don't recognize humor as a potentially critical practice when, when students are operationalizing it. That's what the book is about, like trying to reconcile transgressive humor as a form of social critique. Luckily, we've got a bevy of wonderful comedians out there who are doing that every night. You know, you just got to say, well, like, what's Wanda Sykes? What's Langston Kerman? What's, uh, you know, Hassan Minhaj? What's uh, Trevor Noah, if not someone who's speaking truth to power when they get up there? Um, I could go on and on. I, I mean, I could talk for the whole hour just naming comedians, all of these comedians were students at one point. You know, these were students who, while I don't know every one of their life stories, presumably were sitting there thinking funny things about serious topics. Um, and maybe some of them had teachers who knew how to support that. But I think in a lot of cases, um, that sort of thought process becomes criminalized and disciplined. Um, you get known as subversive you um can be accused of being disruptive you can be accused of being insubordinate and of course you and i know that oftentimes these labels are used disproportionately to describe students of color 
Absolutely. Yeah. So this is what the book is about. And I realized I, I probably just talked without breathing for like eight minutes. So I apologize for that. No, I'm going to do a lot of listening be, because this this is a concept that I have not studied too deeply and, and one I want to learn more about. And you just mentioned students who, who use humor as as ways to address critical topics. Mm-hmm. Can you give can you provide some examples of how teachers can support that? Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, one of the ways is by just um, recognizing this form of humor, not only as a disruption to the teacher's flow, but as a disruption to the topic. So if we're trying to disrupt racism and humor is disruptive, then we can see humor as part of the attempt to disrupt racism itself. Um, you know, an, an example that I'll share from my own teaching life, and this happened many years ago, but I was teaching something. I don't remember the topic. Um, you know, I, I asked a question and a bunch of hands went up. And one of those hands was from a student of mine who I had a really good relationship with. Um, he's a Chicano student and I didn't call on him. And like right away under his breath, he goes, oh, I guess my brown hand blended into the brown brick wall right behind me. So you just didn't see me, didn't see me. Right. And um, he was funny. He got a good laugh and he deserved to get a good laugh for it. But beyond that, he was making a cultural critique, you know, about about me, but also about his entire history in schools and something that he had experienced firsthand, which is feeling like um, he was racialized and not called on because of that. And so. If all I did was laugh at the joke and move on, then it's not treating the joke as socioculturally important. If all I did was say, how dare you call me out like that in front of the class, you know, get out of here, go to the principal's office, then I'm abusing my power. And um, I'm also not learning anything from the sociocultural critique of the joke. If I, um, so what did I do? I told him how much I appreciated the humor, but more importantly, behind closed doors, I, I reflected on it. I, it made me think, you know, who am I, a white male cisgendered educator to decide who gets to ask the question and who gets to call on somebody? Always me, right? It was because this is the power that's conferred upon a teacher to frame the conversation and decide who gets to answer the question. And I really had a lot of unlearning to do. Um, I had to form an antagonism in myself to a certain degree. And that's what the joke is capable of doing. It allows a transgressive reframing. Um, it allows the student, in this case, to, to get the teacher through humor to, to kind of rethink how he does things in the classroom. And, and that's the kind of thing that I see all the time in schools. I see students addressing serious, serious subjects with levity. And it doesn't mean that this they don't take it seriously. I think they take things very seriously. I mean, I, I've been in classrooms during the 2021-2022 school year, which here in California was the first year that students were returning to face-to-face instruction after a year of virtual. And let me tell you, they take everything seriously, but that doesn't mean that they're not cracking wise about it and they're not um, 
kind of razzing one another and razzing their teachers at the same time. I think today's students are very um, introspective and circumspect about power, about who has power and how power is abused. And um, a lot of them are not shy about talking about power openly and publicly in ways that sometimes can make authority figures kind of uncomfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, talking about wrestling with the discomfort, I, I, I wonder, you know, what that can look like in the classroom in terms of how we even approach some of our lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, have you is there some research that you've done around that or uh, do you have ideas in terms of like what teachers can do proactively to to encourage this transgressive humor in the classroom? Yeah, well, I mean, we can certainly introduce humorous texts into our teaching. And, you know, when I say text, I'm not just referring to, you know, a bound written text, but any kind of text, YouTube video, I would define as a sort of text that we can use in our teaching. Um, And so, you know, I named some of these stand-up comedians, and um, certainly I think a lot of teachers don't want to use stand-up if it's going to be dirty, but you can find clean stand-up or you can find dirty stand-up and just bleep over the parts that, you know, you don't want, you don't want your students to hear in the classroom, I suppose, but looking at something that, we'll just use a Trevor Noah, for instance, um, saying like, okay, let's think about the topic he's talking about. What are some ways that we might research that topic? Now let's think about the way that Trevor Noah talks about that topic, or John Oliver talks about that topic, or uh, Amber Ruffin talks about that topic. These are serious topics. We're getting into um, deep, deep racial inequalities here. Why are they making jokes about it? What does that do to us as an audience to make jokes about it? And then from there, you can assign students. Um, you know, not all students are funny. Not all students are comfortable being funny. But, you know, when did that ever stop a teacher from assigning something? You don't just always have to play to your students' strengths, um, tossing softballs all the time. But I think a lot of this goes back thousands of years to, like, Aristotelian rhetoric. Um, you know, what are, what are the ways that we try to frame an argument for our particular audience and humor can get people to listen differently than just hitting them over the head with statistics or um, coming with a somber tone. And I'm not saying that serious topics don't deserve our serious attention, because of course they do. I think what I'm arguing is that humor doesn't mean we're not taking something seriously. I think oftentimes humor comes from a place of anger and really righteous rage. Um it's not just making light of things. It's, you know, I think the idea of the class clown that doesn't take anything seriously is a falsehood. I think class clowns take a lot of things seriously, um, but they get a bad rap because, you know, they got the word clown in that title. And, you know, clowns are foolish and they just amuse for the own, for the benefit of amusement. I'm starting to think of transgressive humor less like a cloud and more like a gremlin, you know, a gremlin that is concerned with systems and wants to take those systems down a peg. Mm, I like that. I like that. Yeah. You know, thinking about, I mean, Trevor Noah is a great example of a comedian who brilliantly 
uses humor to address serious topics. Thinking about George Carlin and, and some of the content that from from the past that George Carlin had put out. Um, and I don't remember things line line for line, but you know, I, I remember the genius of his framing. Who are some comedians besides the ones that you already mentioned? Who are some other comedians that come to mind for you that use humor well that um, we should consider using some of their content? Uh, or even if we're not necessarily, you know, playing all of their content in the classroom, perhaps extracting excerpts or or thinking about uh, their brilliance and their framing to support our own work. In reaching um, students. Yeah. So going all the way back, I'm going to say guys like George Carlin, um, Richard Pryor, without a doubt, you know, these are like some of the kings of comedy in my book. Um, but there's a lot working today that are fantastic. Um, I really like uh, Cameron Esposito. I really like Ronnie Chang. I really like uh, Joel Kim Booster. I, um, I would recommend Langston Kerman. And each of these comics talks about different things, right? They talk about them in their own ways. Cameron Esposito has a whole album where she's taking on rape culture. And, you know, you're like, rape culture, not a funny thing. This is a serious thing. This is injustice. Needn't we be talking about that in serious, hushed tones? And, you know, Esposito is like, well, yes, it's a serious topic. And she tells jokes about it. And they're not jokes that are meant to mock people who have been harmed and are harmed by rape culture. They're making jokes at the expense of perpetrators of rape culture. And that's the big difference. So a lot of my book, I'm going to just take a quick aside, is framed around this dialectic of punching up and punching down. You know, punching up being humor that takes aim at um, oppressors, for lack of a better term. Um, this is These are jokes about white supremacy and jokes about cis-heteropatriarchy jokes about systems of power and wealth and capitalism, whereas punching down would be taking aim at people who are harmed, people who are vulnerable to harm. And, um, you know, it's not a perfectly clear delineation, but it helps me to theorize for this book when I'm looking at humor that's transgressive, because punching down is transgressive humor, too. It's transgressing the boundaries of... Um, basic human dignity you know like and that's a form of transgression it's just not the kind of transgression that i want to celebrate so you know when we're talking about comics that i would recommend if you had asked me that five years ago i would have started with dave Chappelle, right because you know i know the kind of work that dave Chappelle has done his whole career but now he's also infamous for punching down at trans community so it changes how we think about comedy and, and humorous and what they're doing as truth tellers because he's still telling his truths he's just now doing it in a way that is deeply uncomfortable because you're like you've been calling out racial abuse for decades but now you're perpetuating a different form of gender-based mm -hmm. violence and so you know if someone listens to this podcast years from now some of these comedians i'm naming might have said problematic things in the years since. You know, I'm, I'm sure. talking January 2023, and I'll recommend Langston Kerman, and I'll recommend um, Hari Kandabalu, and Hassan Minhaj, and Trevor Noah. I think I'm most drawn to Trevor Noah a lot of the time because of his book, 
born a crime, which um, the way he writes about being disciplined as a class clown and labeled as defiant. And then we obviously know who he becomes as an adult. I'm able to just follow a straight line from, you know, like that kid who we've all taught, you know, and sometimes as teachers, even teachers who appreciate humor, you're thinking like, why can't this kid just be quiet? You know, you feel that vein pulsing in your head. It's sixth period. You're just trying to teach your lesson and they're just cracking wise. You're like, ah, oh. but when you step back and you realize this generative, creative nature of what they're doing with this humor, again, it's, it's the gremlin. You know, gremlins are never convenient to have around because they're going to mess up your machinery. They're going to chew through the wires. They're going to take down the plane. But afterward, it forces you to grapple with that and to change. It forces you to become better. And that's what gremlins do to systems. They, they show you the ways in which they're deficient so that you can hopefully uh, fix those deficiencies. Mm. Yeah, and, and change is hard. Change is hard, and it's also hard for us to look at our deficiencies, whether we're talking about individual deficiencies or systemic deficiencies, and, and really work towards doing something different, right? Or uh, eradicating that and, you know, bringing about that that change. It's um, monumentally hard. And, and I am not putting this on the feet of educators, you know, who probably have the hardest job in America and it's getting harder, you know, with, and, and they have so many people coming from so many sides telling them this is what you have to do. You know, hey, could you just work a 20 hour day, um, you know, for uh, less money? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I want to be very clear that I'm not saying, oh, this is another thing teachers have to add to their plate. You know, find a little room between this and that and put transgressive humor in there. I like to think of this more as just a form of uh, solidarity work, you know, between and among various stakeholders in the school to to sort of be able to honor one another's critical sense makers. Yeah. Why don't you share what your aspirations are for this book? Okay. Uh, well, I've talked so far a lot about the kind of liberatory potential of transgressive humor that that critiques. Um, so one of the other aspirations I have for this book is to kind of also theorize punching down. Um, so one day, I, so I, I, I conducted this research in three high schools in the Fresno area. And um, you know, I was learning all sorts of amazing, wonderful things by sitting in classrooms and by interviewing teachers and interviewing students. You know, one afternoon I rolled into one of the schools and the vibe was very different. Um, I couldn't immediately tell what it was. And the teacher said yesterday at one of our other schools in the district, which happened to be a, a different school that, that I'm doing research at, so there was a, a white kid who some of his white buddies took a picture of him in the locker room with a t-shirt twisted over his head in the shape of a KKK hood. These kids then um, broadcast this image on social media where it started spreading. And so the day that I walked onto campus at the other high school, the students led by the Black Student Union at that school uh, staged a protest. They led a walkout. Um, they stated their demands. They marched on downtown. Um, it was a beautiful thing to see the uh, the youth activism. What was not beautiful is knowing that 
humor was at the root of this. You know, some mm, punching some, down, some kids punching down, right? Being um, channeling a racial, a racist discourse that um, my research has shown me has long been um, going strong in in this school and in this district and. Um, I think I'm I'm just as interested in theorizing that sort of humor and and what it does in schools and how to how to react because you, you get all the traditional responses from leadership you know the the whole the bad apple discourse right these kids these kids will be isolated and punished you get the um, this isn't who we are this doesn't represent what we believe and you're like well well come on now though. Doesn't it though? <laughs> you know, like you gotta actually be able to to show the receipts if you're gonna say this isn't who we are. Like, what work have you done mm. curricularly, discursively? Um, how, what kind of professional development are you giving your teachers to talk about racial issues in the classroom? Um, or are you telling them that th- these things are off limits? You're forcing them to teach colorblind literature. You know, so. These are the kinds of responses that are very predictable, and I'm I'm hoping to to kind of be able to give better better feedback. I'm I'm not going to offer capital S solutions in this book. I don't think I'm capable or qualified to do that, but I am going to try to you know run a sort of discussion. And and there are a few books that have come out recently. Um, Let's see, Raul Perez has a book that came out just earlier this year, well, last year, because it's 2023 now, called uh, The Souls of White Jokes. And um, it's about something that he calls amused racial contempt. And so this has been really crucial in, in, um, in my theorization of what I saw in these high schools. And, of course, there are other forms of amused contempt that are not racial, but which are reserved for... Um, women or um, transgender students. And, and we can see the ways that punching down at these students um, as a form of racial contempt creates an in-group and an out-group, right? It, it brings the people who are joking closer together into some sort of affiliation, like those uh, the white guys in the locker room, at the expense of creating an out-group and saying, you know, you don't belong here. You, you're not a part of this community. And so, yeah, that's one of my major, my major goals for the book is to think about what Raul Perez is writing about in his book, specifically in a school setting. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to to reading it. When can we anticipate the book being published? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it is due to the publisher. Publisher is Routledge. It's due September 30th of this year. And this is my first book, so I have no real sense of what post-production scheduling looks like. If they get the book and it comes out three months later or six months later, I'm kind of hoping for a 2025 or, or maybe late 2024 release. But yeah, like I said, I'm I'm new to this. I, I have no idea how publishers work and you know what their what their queue looks like and their turnaround time and. Also, they might read the book and say, yeah, you're going to have to rewrite this thing. You know, you're you're too conversational. We need you more academic. Or they might look at it and say, you're too academic. We, we right. need you more conversational. And that's the weird thing about being a, a professor for the last um, decade or so is 
I've really taught myself how to write in a very specific way that I'm trying to unlearn in the writing of this book because I don't want it to feel totally uh, academic y and esoteric. You know, I, I want it to be readable. And you would think, well, that should be easy, right? But no, you got to unlearn how to write those dense, jargony sentences first. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, every everything has its process and, and hopefully you're finding humor in the process of writing this book and going through all the ups and downs. Right. The roller coaster of the publishing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but glad you're doing so. Now, if you had the opportunity to have lunch with anyone dead or alive. Who would it be and why? And and the who is actually tied to any. It could be any comedian or any individual that that you think really brings that transgressive yeah. humor that would bring that transgressive humor to the to the lunch. Okay. Who would it be and why? All right. I'm going to qualify this by saying this is a lunch that I don't necessarily want to participate as a conversationalist in, but I would love to just listen, be a a, a listener in at this lunch. I'm going to say. Any old day, the Daily Show writer's room, um, you know, where Trevor Noah's there, Hasan Minaj is there, all of the correspondents are there, and they're just going out to lunch. I would love to be uh, sitting at that table, listening to the conversation. Maybe a couple times I might chime in, but I think I'd have a lot more to learn than add to that conversation. And if I had to add something, I would want to ask every single one of them about what their school experiences were like. Um, you know, there, there are just so many sharp as attack comedians out there. Um, I really like, do you know Amber Ruffin at all? I'm not familiar with Amber Ruffin. So she's got her own Friday night show now that I, I don't think I've ever once watched on a Friday night. But, you know, these days everything's put on the Internet. Right. Um, so I think she was she got her star on uh, on another late night show, you know, just kind of doing a little spot here and there. And her her stuff is brilliant. You know, it's, it's all like I mean, she takes on issues, talks about race, talks about gender does it with a kind of knowing wink wink humor that i mean she's brilliant and yeah check out check out the amber ruffin show sometime amber ruffin got it um yeah i think she started on seth uh seth meyer's late night show you know doing a kind of correspondent thing um but yeah she's she's gonna be she's her own she's her own comedian she doesn't need to be part of someone I'll, else's show. i'll look her up i'll look her up so yeah. what's the what's the message of encouragement you have for the audience? Yeah, um, the lesson of encouragement is that we already have the tools. We sometimes it just takes a little bit of patience, I think, to um, respect and honor the critical contributions of wise asses, you know, of of gremlins, of class clowns, and that can be the hardest thing to do when you're feeling the pressure, you know, when you know big state tests are coming up or you're a week behind because a bunch of kids got COVID and they couldn't come in. And so you're trying to teach from behind or whatever it is. And the last thing you have patience for is this kid who keeps interrupting you, you know, with uh, with quips from the back of the room. And you just want to tell them, hey, be cool. Can you can you keep with me here? But kind of pausing, you know, stopping time, 
thinking, what are they adding? You know, so this is like, this is as old as time, but reframing students out of that deficit and thinking about what they're doing as a resource, you know, through an additive or an asset-based lens. Asset-based. We can look at class clown behaviors the same way. Rather than a disciplinary infraction, what is that student adding to our collective consciousness? And sometimes class clown behaviors are not taking aim at power. You know, they're they're just they're just making jokes, you know, or making like a fart sound or something like that. And that's not the same thing as making a joke to take, you know, to take a shot at power or to talk about um the venality of the wealthy to bring down capitalist structures. So I'm not saying that all humor needs to get equal love, but um, we don't want to just automatically assume that students being humor, humorous are uh, problems that need to be solved. That's good. That's good. Yeah. It's something for us to keep in mind as we're engaging with the young people. So David, as we wrap up, where can folks follow you? I am on Twitter where I don't post all that frequently. <laughs> I'm on Instagram where I just post pictures of my children. Um, I, I publish a lot of articles um, and I try to make those available on academia.edu for anyone who would be interested in reading them without needing some sort of institutional library sponsorship. Because we all know academic articles are behind like 73 paywalls and they are not accessible. So yes, that is the truth. That is the truth. We do things to try to make them more accessible because the whole point is to, to be in conversation with others. You know, you don't, you don't write an article to try to like hit someone over the head and say, do this tomorrow. Like It's all meant to be part of a larger conversation. Well, that's part of the reason you're here. That's part of the reason we have this platform or a classroom to to give folks access. Those who who are having trouble getting through all the walls to to be able to read the journal that that David Lowe and others wrote. Well, we brought them here for you. Gave y'all a breakdown of transgressive humor in the classroom. All right. This is just an introduction, people. And we got that book to look forward to. You're going to have to wait a little bit. But in the meantime, follow David on social media, go read some of the articles, the ones that you could get access to. And let's continue to just wrestle with this concept of transgressive humor and think about ways that that we could affirm our students, especially when they're punching up. All right. Think about ways that we can encourage that uh, and, and, and continue to to give them the the language, right? To let them know like, hey, actually what you're doing is using humor as critical literacy practices, David shared earlier. And so thank you, David. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you for getting us to, to really dig deep and think about this concept of transgressive humor. And, and thank you for writing this book. I'm looking forward to reading it. I can't wait. I've got smoke coming out of my fingers every day. I'm, I am diligently at work at this, and I really appreciate this conversation today. Well, appreciate once the you. book is out, got to have you back on the platform. Oh, yeah. You know, I'll be there. Uh, I'll be there so fast that uh, everyone's head will spin. It'll be good. It'll be good. Thank you so much. All right. Until next time. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, 
for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.